Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And just like always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. I always say this literally every episode, but I'm so happy to know that I have listeners from all over the world. I never ever thought that I would reach people outside of the United States. I always just thought it would be my family. So when I see that I have new listeners from other countries, I get really excited. Uh, Ecuador, I see that more people from Sweden are listening and that just always amazes me um, that I see people from other countries, especially uh, places that I someday hope to visit. So I thank you guys so much. join the patreon uh we do have tiers that allow you to request crimes a reason i put that in there is because not a lot of crimes make international news so you may have interesting crimes that i would never have heard of so please uh, head over there the merch store is up and live as well those are just a couple of ways that you can show your support as well as listening which you already do so thank you so much um you guys may have noticed there's a little bit of quality fluctuations Um, I started a different job, so I'm working much earlier, so I have to record earlier. And unfortunately, my street kind of sometimes is like a drag race, not the good kind. And so luckily, um, I've gotten some uh, nice days where I get to record later. Uh, But recently, there have been some days, like I said, it being summer, people are out with their muscle cars, so I'm doing my best to edit that out. Uh, I'd started this one and had to stop because not only were there tons of really loud muscle cars, but then suddenly, apparently there was a fire. So there were lots of ambulances and police cars. And then as soon as they stopped, somebody decided to go into my parking lot and have what they thought was going to be a block party until luckily the police from the fire came over to ask them to stop. So (laughs) I'm working on it. We're trying, I'm trying to soundproof the window so that the time of day doesn't matter so kind of bear with me as i deal with those kind of fluctuations in the audio um like i said i'm working on it uh but thank you so much and uh, today we're going to look at a yoga cult and the reason that i wanted to do this is because there is a lot of conversation behind what makes a yoga movement a cult like when does it go from just being a movement of spiritual enlightenment and self-betterment to an actual cult and so that's what we're going to look at today all cults share some important features one of the most notable is the presence of a charismatic figure who rules over the cult with unquestionable authority in many cults this figure may be an ordinary everyday person but they have an extraordinary ability to command the attention and obedience of a relatively small an obedient group of impressionable followers. Some cult leaders enjoy an additional layer of legitimacy. They are ordained religious figures with a recognized mantle of spiritual leadership. In effect, they have a mandate to rule, and in theory, it should be benignly over those that are in their charge. That official mandate may allow them to attract an unusually large flock of followers, Many of them will be well-educated and socially influential. They're people who are eager to receive spiritual guidance or merely just bask in the leader's presence. Yoga cults tend to fit this pattern. Many have at their top a charismatic guru who are steeped in Eastern mysticism. Many, but not all, of the guru represent ancient and highly esoteric lineages of yoga practices 
that are rooted in different currents and interpretations of Hinduism, in some cases, Buddhism. Many begin their ministry with followers from their native land, typically India. However, once they begin branching out into the Western world, their sphere of influence and star status, abetted by celebrity followers, widened considerably. Indian sages first began arriving in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, but they were initially treated as oddities, even appearing at the New York World's Fair alongside exotic pets such as tigers and circus acts. However, it wasn't until the 1960s with the explosion of counterculture that they attracted mass followings, especially young, disaffected people. Now, we touched very, very briefly about Ram Das, who was known for much of the counterculture movement as Dr. Richard Alpert. He, along with Timothy Leary, ran the cyclobin drug trials out of Harvard. That turned into Leary and Alpert selling LSD to the masses. They didn't tell people what it was for, and well, that led to what people thought were bad trips. Now, Leary, he went on to take credit for the counterculture movement and became public enemy number one of Nixon, while Alpert decided to look on for spiritual enlightenment. He went to India and became the guru known as Ram Dass. Many people think that he was dangerous because he did inspire other cults, while other people think that he was just not as enlightened as he may have thought and many people may have thought because of the damage he left in his wake. I had trouble finding the information. Like there was many different ideas, like people had different opinions about him, but there wasn't a lot of facts to be able to back it up. So I didn't really want to do a podcast based entirely just on people's opinions. Many young people that were dodging the draft, experimenting with sex and drugs and turning away from established institutions such as organized Christian religion were drawn to these ways. Under the pop culture sway of groups like the Beatles who extolled the virtues of Eastern religion, they began to flock to a succession of Indian gurus who promised them releases from the stress of a nine to five job and conventions like marriage and tenets of Western materialism. The gurus that arrived on American shores, beginning with young Tibetan Buddhist Shogwam Rinpoche, were not so naive as their followers. The gurus were eager to share their sacred wisdom and to see it take root in the world's most powerful nation. Most harbored doubts that Americans were psychologically or emotionally prepared to accept the sacrifices and rigors of Eastern mysticism, to forego their sensual pleasures and to surrender their strong will and egos to a divine force. But they too found themselves tempted by the unconditional devotion that they would soon receive. Young women, many of them fatherless or from dysfunctional homes, projected a host of unmet needs upon these new daddy figures. Some gurus far too easily crossed their boundaries, creating veritable harems among their female followers. Others, according to published testimonies from victims and survivors, imposed themselves by force on women that they thought were attractive, often portraying their conquests as spiritual tests of their disciples' obedience and loyalty. Not all of these gurus created mass cults. Some, 
clearly displayed the manipulative traits of cult leaders, particularly when it came to using their status in mystical personas to coerce sex out of their followers. Rin Posh had taken a young British bride prior to his arrival in Colorado in the United States, but still somehow found time for what he called wenching. He also hosted orgasmic retreats that sometimes became abusive. Periodically, in a drunken haze, he would organize a bizarre hazing of invited guests, for which he was later denounced, as it damaged his reputation. In a pattern often found in cults, Rinposh would sometimes call upon followers to do his bidding. Anxious to curry favor with the guru, they would agree to, in effect, become his henchmen. In a story about Rinposh for The Walrus, a woman named Liz Curry, who he hired as a nanny, spoke out about the guru's abuse. What Rinposh did was create an environment for emotional and sexual harm in which no one was ever held accountable for their actions. She also claimed he was violent behind closed doors. If he had been publicly violent, it would have been much easier to identify him as harmful. But Ron Panache's reckless antics were tame compared to what was to come. A confessed alcoholic, he lacked the focus and discipline to establish and manage a large-scale organization. He enjoyed a cult of personality, a reputation that would allow him to attract a following among poets like Allen Ginsberg and Robert Bly, and musicians such as Joni Mitchell, who even wrote a song about him. But he was also a Buddhist with roots in Tibet not India. He was not a devotee of the physical practices associated with yoga, though he was rooted in much the same traditions of tantric mysticism. He was reluctant to impart his deeper spiritual wisdom to Westerners in ways that might have galvanized a mass following. Still, Rin Panache set a dangerous precedent of tolerance for blind obedience and collective abuse that would set the stage for much larger and more abusive yoga cults in the years to come. One of the first and worst of these mass cults was one established in the late 1970s by an Indian-born guru, Bhagwan Rajneesh, who came to be known as the spiritual avatar, Osho. Rajneesh set out to create an entire community of dedicated followers and used his mesmerizing collective meditations and unbridled sexual orgies to bind them to his directives. Former Osho disciple Rosalind Smith told the print how Rajneesh's teachings led to an environment where women lost agency over their sex lives. The lingo at the ashram was say yes, and say yes meant say yes to life. One man made an approach to me and I wasn't in the least bit interested, but I felt guilty to refuse him because I wasn't saying yes to life. When Asho and his followers eventually came under siege, they picked up and moved overseas to rural Oregon, where they soon came into conflict with the local residents. Asho's followers, at his behest, began killing animals and conspired to murder a U.S. attorney, and they even poisoned the local water supply. During the ensuing conflict, federal authorities moved in, disbanded the cult, and deported Osho back to India. The Osho experience 
featured another key feature of most modern-day yoga cults, the guru's accumulation of personal wealth and a lifestyle of unbridled luxury. This pattern became even more visible in the case of Yogi Bhajan, who set up shop in Los Angeles beginning in the late 1960s. Over the next four decades, he established a spiritual empire that encompassed the world's four continents. Like his contemporary, Bikram Chowdhury, the founder of Bikram Hot Yoga, who soon formed his own cult. Bajan attracted a following among Hollywood celebrities and amassed a personal fortune that included expensive jewelry, a fleet of luxury cars, and like many other gurus, he fancied Rolls Royces, a luxury mansion in Beverly Hills, and desert ranches in both New Mexico and Southern California. He was also influential in politics with close ties to New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. When Bajan died in 2008 at the age of 75, Richardson even ordered the state flag to be flown at half mass in his honor. Bajan's cult also featured the creation of a personal harem and a cult-like following. His circle of influence was so vast and his travels so far flung that he never really appears to have led any particular group of followers to do his bidding or to serve him personally. Like Amartri Desai, who ruled the roost at Kripli Institute, bedding down even his married followers, rather, he served as an all-powerful CEO of a vast corporate entity, dubbed the 3HO Foundation. He often had dedicated lieutenants carry out his orders, and they in turn would establish personal fiefdoms of their own. Yet as we know from at least one personal memoir, Bajan did take selected young Western women as concubines, summoning them to his quarters for sex, which some accepted, not always willingly, as part of the gift of his divine presence. Yoga cults initially featured Indian gurus at their helm, but in more recent decades, some of their most charismatic American disciples were able to follow in their footsteps. In the late 1990s, John Friend, a one-time devotee of legendary BKS Iyengar, established his own yoga lineage that he dubbed Anshura, translated roughly as free-floating grace. Friend, with his hip, easy-going style and sporting a goofy grin, quickly attracted hundreds of thousands of young millennials, mostly women, who preferred a more down-to-earth Western guru with a modern sensibility. Friend's rise was truly meteoric. By 2009, the industry trade magazine, Yoga Journal, had declared Anshura the fastest growing yoga movement in the country. But within three years, the burgeoning Friend Empire, which included plans to build a yoga theme park, collapsed. Friend faced charges that he had engaged in ritual sex with married followers and had cooked the organization's books. Several of his most prominent female lieutenants turned on him publicly, and the Anshura corporate organization, which he ran but did not completely control, voted him out. Friend's rapid rise and fall illustrates how difficult it might be for yoga cults to survive in today's Me Too world, where standards of transparency and accountability are much higher than they once were. The same fate befell two other would-be American gurus, Michael Roach, a self-styled Buddhist, and Greg Gumacho, 
who split off from Bikram to form his own Yoga to the People sect. In 2012, Roche became implicated in the death implicated, excuse me, in the death of two of his most ardent followers, whom he apparently convinced to go on a retreat in the Arizona desert, where they died from exposure. Gumachio billed himself as a more democratic alternative to the notoriously tyrannical Bikram, but turned out to be just as manipulative in his own cult-building endeavors. In 2018, he too was exposed and forced into exile. He was later sued by a handful of women for rape and sexual assault and stripped of all of his holdings. Why do these yoga cults persist? Many young Americans, in their unbridled zeal for transcendence, may be engaged in a kind of materialism of the spirit, a self-centeredness masquerading as devotion. Rinpoche wrote an entire book on the topic of spiritual materialism, warning Americans that their deep-seated egocentrism and acquisitiveness could backfire in their quest for sacred wisdom. As noted, Rinpoche even refrained from revealing to his students some of the deeper secrets of tantric mysticism for fear that unlocking these mysteries would allow them to exercise hidden powers to control and manipulate others. Many Americans, like Friend, bypassed their imported gurus and went directly to India to study tantric mysticism for themselves. His mentor, Iyengar, like Rinpoche, wanted to see Hatha Yoga stripped of tantric mysticism and reconfigured as a health and fitness practice accessible to mainstream Americans in a largely Christian culture. But Friend, like other ambitious American yogis, would have none of it. He understood the potential dangers, but saw yoga's esotericism as true source of its transformative potential. Friend didn't just want to heal people in the context of their everyday lives. He envisioned his Unsure movement as the vanguard of a spiritual revolution that would transform American society as a whole. Such heady and grandiose visions are often common to cults, and yoga cults are no exception. Once a cult movement is imbued with such a world-changing mission, the guru ceases to be a guide and a healer. Suddenly, they're a prophet. They carry with them the promise of an end, not just to their followers' suffering, but to all suffering. For their followers, being designated as part of a revolutionary vanguard is exciting, even intoxicating. They credit their leader with allowing them to recognize in their own life-changing potential. Obeying the leader isn't subversive, it's a service to a cause of a greater good, something much greater than themselves. Once invested in this cause, abandoning their leader is viewed as a personal and collective betrayal. Now, before we learn about Kashi Ashram, here is a word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. 
Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Ma Jaya was born Joyce Green in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in a cellar apartment near Brighton Beach. Her mother died of cancer when she was just 13 years old. Ma Jaya said that as a young girl, she had conversations with homeless people who lived under the Coney Island boardwalk. The interactions strengthened her desire to serve the needy and ultimately led her to spend more time on Coney Island where she eventually met her future husband, Sal Di Fiori. Maya and Sal married in 1956 and had three children. Ja, or Ma, struggled with obesity in her 30s and in 1972 enrolled in Jack LaLanne weight loss classes where she learned breathing exercises for weight loss. So for those of you who don't know who Jack LaLanne was, he was, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call him a weight loss guru, but in the 70s and 60s, they would have these little weight loss shows. They were syndicated on American television. And Jack LaLanne was very popular in the 70s and into the 80s because he was older and he was in really good shape and he was especially known for his juicing machines. So he, I guess he was way ahead of the times because he was all about juicing. So as she was able to lose weight and while practicing her breathing exercises in her home, she claimed to have a series of mystical visions of Jesus Christ, Bhagwan Natyanda, and Neem Karoli Baba. One night, Di Fiori, her husband, heard a loud crash. He rushed downstairs and saw the future guru frantically careening about the house. She had had a vision of Christ. She whispered to him, Wounds, she said she had. They had appeared on her hands. What are you talking about? He asked her. She showed him her pajamas, which had red splotches all over the fabric. So I took those pajamas to a friend who owned a dry cleaner, he said. And they told me it was theatrical blood. Nonetheless, the word rippled through the burrows. There'd been a stigmata. And Joyce Green Di Fiore soon materialized in basements and parks across the city, delivering night-long sermons. I thought, get skinny with Christ or get fat without him, she later told the Palm Beach Post. 
I lost 65 pounds on the Christ diet. Jeez, I wish it was that simple. In 1975, Ma Jaya left her two oldest children, Jimmy and Dennis, with her husband, who filed for divorce a year later. Jimmy was especially wrought up over the abandonment, his family said. Those feelings would stay with him for the rest of his life. The guru, however, held on to her youngest daughter, Molly, whose name had been changed at her request whenever people talked about this. In 1976, Ma Jaya and her flock fled to New York for a sprawling plot of grass and creek in Indian River County in central Florida. In one of the most Christian areas of the state where steeples dominate most of the horizon, the community built Buddhist and Hindu temples and followed an esoteric existence of celibacy and vegetarianism. She called her mission Kashi Ashram. They had a K through 12 primary and secondary education center called the River School. Originally they called it the Ranch School, but they thought the River School sounded better. It was opened in the early 1980s, but eventually it closed after graduating its final class in 2005. They preached racial, ethnic, and religious tolerance. They crusaded against AIDS eventually and embraced people who were infected with the virus. It became an 80-acre sanctuary that claimed a worldwide outreach. Her efforts even earned her citations for public service. They added an HIV-AIDS education and prevention program that they named the River Fund in 1990. An affordable living community called By the River was opened in 2009. It had accommodations for 40 low-income seniors. Unfortunately, By the River was foreclosed in 2013 due to insufficient government funding and a lack of grant funding. The Kashi Ashram community remains active and includes a retreat center, a yoga school, a sustainable farm. The retreat was even visited by Julia Roberts after she discovered Ma Jaya's teachings when she researched her role for Eat, Pray, Love in 2010. Satellite branches of Kashi Ashram were even established in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Colorado, Santa Fe, and Atlanta. But everything was not as enlightened as it seemed. She told her followers she was the one who could swallow their pain and make it vanish. She said, and I quote, when Christ first came to me, when I anxiously waited for him to appear, afraid that he would, but more afraid that he wouldn't, I turned on every light in my house. When he appeared then, my house looked dark due to his brightness. The house looked dark, but this guru is greater than God. Flesh man knows. The guru you can see and touch and feel. God, unless you're perfect, you cannot. The guru is greater than God. Now, this from a 1977 retreat in California until her death in 2012, this is what caused Ma Jaya's infallibility. It was absolutely unquestioned by her followers. At an isolated Florida ranch near Sebastian, she surrounded herself with hundreds who would abandon their homes and their families to worship her like a deity. I am breath, she would tell them. I am inside you. This was about finding a way to God, remembers one longtime resident who traveled all the way from California. 
for those of you who are not from the US, it means they traveled all the way from one side of the country to another. If you were to drive, that's roughly about a week long car trip. Hundreds of others arrived, bedraggled from the road, and there was Ma, grinning and bejeweled. She hugged them. She called them child. Together they promised to serve humanity in the name of spirituality. Majaya bestowed on them Hindu names and forbade recreational sex, according to interviews with eight former residents. Without warning, she would order marriages between devotees who barely knew each other. Ma married Chandra and Madhava on the spur of the moment last Sunday. One follower wrote in her journal in 1981, they seemed really happy about it. But then, a few weeks afterward, she wrote, she doesn't care about how happy she makes us or how miserable she makes us either. Those who condemn Ma emerged in a vicious 2001 divorce between former Kashi resident Richard Rosencrantz and his wife Gina, who remains at the ashram to this day. In court filings, several ex-church members remembered scenarios where they say constitute mind control. One afternoon in the early 1980s, Richard Rosencrantz dipped his entire head into a vat of red paint. When asked what had happened, he answered he had gotten a message from Ma. Or they recalled Ma Jaya's sudden fixation on children after she had had several miscarriages with her new husband, Sose Cho. Roseanne Henry is a former ashram resident who's now a psychologist in Littleton, Colorado. My husband and I wanted to have a child in 1981. She remembered in a deposition that was logged in the Rosencrantz divorce case, but we had to ask her for permission. Before she entered into labor in October 21st of 1981, Henry says she dyed her blonde hair black to impersonate Ma Jaya. She even signed the guru's name on her daughter's birth certificate. Then, after she was wheeled out of Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, carrying her newborn child, she spotted a van full of Kashi followers. Without hesitation, she handed over her daughter, who was secreted back to the ranch. Henry testified to all of this in court, adding she did this because she believed Majaya to be the divine mother. In all, four mothers from 1978 to 1982 signed Ma Jaya or her husband's name on their children's birth certificate as the biological parents, which by the way is illegal in the United States. You can't, it, you can give up your parental rights while you are pregnant and then you can put someone's name on a birth certificate with parental rights. Like there's ways to do this where you don't have to dye your hair and pretend to be somebody else during a birth. So all of this, this is super illegal, even all the way back to 78 and 82. Basically, they, per they committed identity theft. They pretended to be someone else so that they could give birth and claim that this person was the child's parent. This is, this is not just creepy, weird, and awful. This is illegal. After Henry took back his daughter, Majaya descended into apoplexy, which is a kind of absolute rage. She was completely outraged that the child had been taken from her, Conti testified. 
she was trying to scheme all the ways to try and kidnap her back. In the following months, Henry Sikashi delivered stuffed animals and bicycles to the front step. In Littleton, agents of the Kashi Ashram stalked her child. At one point, Roseanne Henry said in her 2001 deposition, I had to decide if I was going to have to hire a bodyguard for my child. Another disputed tale emerged weeks after Henry's child was born. On the night of December 10th, Maja's followers called into the main house at Kashi Ashram their night for their nightly prayer session. The guru, at the time, was on speakerphone. Dozens packed into the room, clattered with urns and statues, and over the phone, the guru launched into a monologue. But then she dropped a bomb. She just said it like it was nothing. I have married my 14-year-old daughter, Molly, to Dada Das. Puzzled, concerned, and scared looks were on people's faces because Dada Das was 25 years old. I remember thinking she can't possibly be old enough to marry a grown man, said one of the followers. I thought that she was 12, but I knew that Ma would never hurt her own child. There was no child abuse at the Kashi. Then the masked men came for 13-year-old Wang Chun Rosencrantz on a spring day in 1996. A small garden temple beside Ma Jaya's two-story house near a pond where residents sprinkled the ashes of their dead. The wiry, dark-haired boy waited. Ma Jaya had requested to see him, but according to testimony, she didn't arrive. Instead, two masked men grabbed the boy. They put duct tape over his mouth and restrained him. And then they whipped him with rock-laden socks. Majaya, who, and Conti, who was her confidant and treasurer, were allegedly outside her house, and she was ecstatic, Conti claimed. The, he just, the poor child came out completely bloodied. Weeks later, the men donned ninja outfits again and savaged the child again, but this time it was in clear sight of Maja's house. The guru watched the violence with Conti and several others. Wang Chun allegedly crumpled into a fetal position and just wept. His face was awash in blood. Ma Jaya, Conti said, had a strange look on her face and she just kept saying, hit him harder, hit him harder. The beatings were punishment. The boy, remember, he was a 13 year old boy. The boy had declined to have sex with a girl at the ranch, his same age. And Ma Jaya did not want to hear that. She started calling him a pervert and cursing at him. Okay, wow, a 13 year old boy has enough sense to recognize that if he has sex with another child, it's not right. And when he says no, she calls him a pervert and beats him. Wow, okay, wow. The kid was whimpering and shaking and she was enjoying it. You could see it in her face, she was enjoying it. But Conti wasn't the only one to bring significant allegations against Majaya and the church. And soon it wasn't clear anymore whether this was about a spiritual quest to find God through service and tolerance, or whether they had fallen under the guidance of a megalomaniac who had morphed into something much darker. 
Some of the other allegations were that Mod Jaya either personally struck residents or ordered them to be beaten, according to nine different people. Police were twice called to extract children from the ashram. Mod Jaya demanded money from followers. 13 different residents complained. Ma conspired to defraud me of my inheritance, Richard Rosencrantz stated in a court affidavit. Ma Jaya severely burned a man with a candle in 1981 to punish him for molesting a child, three witnesses stated. The molested boy was beaten. I'm so confused. You punished a child molester, but then you punished the molested boy? He was beaten at length by Ma and made to walk naked around Central Pond with 50 people watching. We're called one of the witnesses. His penis was then colored black with a magic marker. So we're also victim blaming and punishing minor children. This is definitely not the road to spiritual enlightenment. Ma Jaya personally beat at least two children. Ma slapped a boy across the face. I've never seen someone be hit that hard. We also saw Ma slug a two-year-old in the arm. On May 31st, 2004, Jimmy DeFiori, Ma's son, decided to end his life. Ma Jaws, 43-year-old son, stepped into a bathroom at a Staten Island apartment, put on an Elvis record, and unfurled a blanket. He analyzed his face, swallowed a powerful cocktail of painkillers, and laid down. Not wanting to be resuscitated, he made sure to also cut his wrists. When the landlord discovered the body, which was surrounded by black and white photographs of him and his mother. According to the state's coroner, five different drugs were found in his bloodstream. Of all the stories swirling around Ma Jaya and her Kashi rant, perhaps the most tragic are those of her children. Jimmy was 14 when his mother left for Florida. He grew up street tough, charismatic, and dirt bike obsessed. But there was a deep sadness behind his toothy grin. He had so much going for him, but he was stuck, said his younger sister, Molly. He couldn't get out of that time period. He couldn't stop being 12. But Jimmy kept Sal, his father, his sister, Molly, who left the Kashi Ashram when she was 20, at a distance. The week before Jimmy ended his life, he checked into a hospital in Staten Island riddled with a drug addiction and depression. Every night that week, he called Molly, who says she phoned their mother and said, Jimmy needs your help. Her response, you selfish bitch. I have people dying of AIDS and someone dying of cancer. I have more important things to worry about. Okay, wow, um, wow. And this is many times the problem with people who run cults. Um, they think that everything is more important than their family, um, their mission, 
what they're doing and they will absolutely tell their family members to their face that they don't care about them because it doesn't fit the narrative that they're putting forth to their followers. Their followers are the most important thing to them and many times their family members fall to the wayside. After the suicide, Ma Jaya claims to have been shattered by grief. The morning of June 9th, the guru wrote an email to her followers saying, so many of you know how close Jimmy was to us, especially to me, his mommy. He proudly sat by his mom, watching her take care of so many. All he had to say over and over is I'm proud of you, mommy. His last words were, I love you more than anyone, my mommy, and I just want to sleep, mom. I just want to sleep. However, Jimmy had a child and his 13-year-old daughter, Alexa, discovered this note and was absolutely enraged. On the evening of June 12th, she responded with an email of her own. Her father, she wrote to the entire congregation, never said that. I just want to show people what a terrible thing Joyce, yes, her name is Joyce, is. What a bitch. This may be hard to hear or believe, but as long as you have lived on that ranch, you have been lied to. My grandmother does not care about my dad. She didn't care about him when he, she was alive and she definitely doesn't now. My dad had a lot of mental problems and Joyce just added to them. She helped to kill him. Then the girl signed the note. I've heard of many people Joyce brainwashed. One day she will get caught and I can't wait. Good job. I mean, this... 13 year old did what none of the adults did and she told the congregation what kind of a fraud and a phony she really was. She shouldn't have to, she's 13, but she did. And I wish I have some wonderful ending where she comes in and gets caught and she gets called out, but she didn't. The only thing that happened was this contentious divorce where the world got to see, you know, bits and pieces and all these allegations were made. In 2013, she passed away, and that's when many people started to come forward. There were lawsuits over who was going to run the ashram. Now, recently, as recently as you can say, a few years ago, there was a change, like a rebrand, a change in the name so they could get away from some of the accusations and things that she had done, but that's what usually happens with cults. A lot of times when a leader like this passes away either a lot of people leave the cult or there's a rebrand but the cult doesn't go away the people who are the most devout stay and they usually just rebrand and they go about with the basic tenets and then you never hear about them again because most of the horrible things that are happening stop happening um, a lot of of the really most nefarious cults go about like this there are things like the children of god who have a lot of child molestation. There are a handful of celebrities who grew up in that cult. Once they arrested the people who were doing horrible things to the children, most of the devout original people, they stayed on and just rebranded. They're still out there. And that's really the way it is with cults. A lot of times when they get rid of the bad people, they just rebrand and they just kind of keep it moving and keep a lower profile. Sometimes they keep going as a less toxic 
a group or organization and sometimes they morph into something different. The Tony Alamo Ministries, it was the wife who was running things and it was toxic but not horribly toxic. She passed away and her husband took over. It became far more toxic and exploitative than when he passed away. It became more of just a regular everyday church. So usually with cults, unfortunately, they don't disband the way that people really think they do. They kind of just cut away the chafe, so to speak, the bad parts of the wheat, and just move on and go on about life. So I wish I had a much better ending for you, but all that really happened is she passed away. The best that we can hope for is she received karma in her afterlife because she didn't really appear to get it in this world. And like I said, I wish I had a better ending for you, but there isn't really one. So next week, we have a little bit of a better ending to an absolutely crazy and insane story. We have a social life. Is that what you call men who come from wealthy families and don't really have much of a job? Anyway, who had mental health problems and committed a heinous crime and then put on quite a show in the courtroom. And that begs the question, did he commit the crime because of mental illness or did he commit the crime because of entitlement? So, in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. Thank you.